Fiddler on the Roof was a, a 1960s musical that was made into a movie, 1971. And it was the kind of old movie that my parents insisted I sit and watch with them as I was a kid. Musicals didn't make much sense to me. Why people would start singing and dancing for no reason. The story was interesting enough. It was about a Jewish settlement in Russia about the turn of the last century. It focuses on a man named Tevier who has five daughters. Tevier is a, a poor milkman. He, he, he makes his living delivering milk to the villagers. He's so poor that even his horse is too lame to pull the cart, so he has to do it himself. The story turns on how the traditions of his people, traditions they've kept for centuries, are under pressure from the world around them. Tivia knows the world is changing. He just doesn't know whether he should change with it or not. This is most on display as a, an older widower wants to pursue and marry his oldest daughter, uh, he is initially overjoyed because this wealthy man could provide well for her. Uh, it was set up by the matchmaker, and that's how marriage was done back then. That was how his own marriage came about, through a matchmaker. But his older daughter, well, she's not so happy. She wants to marry for love. She's in love with a local boy, and so she pleads with her dad not to make her. Get married. He, he realizes that in a world of survival and money and tradition, he had not thought enough about love. He goes back to his wife Goldie at a, a key scene in the movie and asks her in song, of course, do you love me? He's asking because he's wondering if the, the, the matchmaker set it up and she didn't really want it in the first place. And so, so what have they been doing for 25 years? Trying to figure out what this thing called love is. She, of course, tells him to stop being silly. Says that he probably has indigestion or something. But he presses on and he says, or, or sings, something interesting. She does. This is what she says. For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked your cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? One of the reasons that Fiddler on the Roof is a classic is because it's asking a timeless question. What is love? Movies and musicals are, are bound to ask that question primarily about romantic love. We could ask it more broadly. What is love? And one of the challenges we face in answering the question comes from the culture around us, right? Our world, like Tevye's, is changing. Older definitions of love are being replaced. Do you know that? Older definitions of love were, were something like desiring the good of the beloved. So, so you love me 
if you desire my good and work for my good. That's not what love increasingly has come to mean. Love these days is something like affirming whatever I desire. So so you love me if you give me a big thumbs up on whatever I announce that I want to do or to be. And I'll love you back because your affirmation makes me feel good. Talked to a friend recently, shared that he had dropped out of college in the U.S. to go and work for a company that markets products for the growing marijuana market in my country. And he shared it with a really big smile on his face, like he was hoping I would say, way to go, good choice. I didn't say that. I had another friend recently who got upset with me because I wouldn't affirm his decision to leave his wife and four children so that he could pursue his sexual freedom. I'm not on social media, but I know enough to know that any suggestion you make out there that love can be defined, it can be limited, it can be prescribed or regulated will make you anathema. It will get you canceled. So what does it mean to love? We don't take our cues from culture. Our task, as always, is to look at God's word. We want to let him, let God, tell us what love is, how we should love. Love is, after all, at the center of our faith. And as we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, and we've come now to this final chapter, love is going to take center stage. I could summarize where we've been so far, the first 12 chapters of Hebrews, this way. God brings about a great salvation that calls for a grueling endurance for a glorious future. That's where we've been, as we've been thinking about how Jesus is better than the old covenant. A great salvation a grueling endurance, and a glorious future. And as we finished chapter 12 two weeks ago, we reached a a climax with this vision of the heavenly Jerusalem, where the universal church, all believers from all times and all places, are gathered around the throne. And we're reminded again not to reject the one who is speaking, but in gratitude to worship God with reverence and awe. And here I am reminded that though this book is written down in a letter form, it is very much a sermon. I think it was originally delivered as a sermon. And so the theology that we've covered all comes to application now. I I love, uh, a number of years ago, I started having my wife read all my sermon manuscripts before I preached them. uh, In part because uh, I would have a, a long, beautiful paragraph that she would circle with her pen, and in the margins she would write, so what? (laughs) Very helpful to a preacher. This preacher is going to answer that question for us. So what? Chapter 13 of Hebrews. Let's look at the first four verses of the chapter together. The the main idea, I think, is this. You may want to write this down. You can talk about it over lunch. Christian... You have every reason 
to pay attention to the duties of love. Christian, you have every reason to pay attention to the duties of love. Let's read Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 4. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I want us to think about four duties of love that are laid out for us in these four verses. So we'll think, number one, about love to those inside the church. Love to those inside the church. We'll think, secondly, about love to those outside the church. Verse 2, love to those outside the church. We'll think number three about love to the suffering. Love to the suffering. And then fourth and finally, we'll think about love to the married. Love to the married. It's my prayer that God would help us to see how we're called to love those around us. So let's think first about love to those inside the church. And look again at verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. It's a short verse. Uh, brotherly love is a, it's a familiar idea to us in English. We've heard it. Uh, an American like me quickly thinks about the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's the word in Greek, Philadelphia, here. I think we need to slow down and, and, and not let this command just flow by us because it's so simple. It, it's so short. But it's the first practical command. Let brotherly love continue. What is brotherly love? Well, Jesus had done a revolutionary thing when he told his disciples, you are all brothers. Do you remember that from the Gospels? People in the ancient world, many parts of the world today, have no concept of loving people outside of their immediate family. They're not in your biological family. If you aren't blood, you aren't brothers. Jesus turned those expectations on their head. He told his followers that they're his body, and therefore they should act like a family. That's why Christians call each other brother and sister. In the most important way possible, we are a family. Now, these Christians would have known that. It would have been a part of their early discipleship. But the author of Hebrews doesn't just say love one another as brothers. But let brotherly love continue. Why, why would he say, let it continue? Why might they let it lapse? Well, for one, it's, it's hard to keep doing the things that you did at first. So I think all of us, probably, when we became a Christian, we're told that we should regularly read our Bible and pray, that we should make it a, a daily habit to have a quiet time. The way it was taught to me in college when I was a new believer, well, it's hard to keep doing that through the years and the decades. Do you still do that? Well, I think that's part of the idea here. You, you started loving each other, now you have to continue. You've got to keep loving each other. 
I've been a part mainly of church plants for the last 10 years. We, we emphasize it a lot. We talk about it a lot. One of the things I've realized in being here is that it's, it's much harder to keep doing that. As often as I can, I enjoy spending time with, with older saints here at this church. So um, I like hearing about Sunday school under a tree outside. I like hearing about shop houses and ministry at church camp. I mean, if I get a chance to talk to Tony or to Gilbert or to Uncle KY or to Anna Len, I just want more stories. Tell me about the old days. I want to imagine what it was like for this church. And, and perhaps in my shoes, it's easy to over-romanticize it. I'm sure there were always problems here. But as best as I can understand... You loved each other as a family back then. Well, the challenge and the command to us here is to keep living that way. Years, conflict, hardship happen to all churches. It's hard to let brotherly love continue, isn't it? It was hard in this church that the book of Hebrews was, listening, was written to. They had been through a great deal of persecution and suffering. It would have gotten hard to keep up the serving, keep up the praying, keep up the practical duties of love. I'm convinced in many ways that the, the blessing that we're experiencing right now of having so many new members come into the church. We just yesterday had a, a new members class, 25 people gathered together. What an incredible blessing new people are to a church, but also represents to us a great challenge, doesn't it? I mean, you can't love each other if you don't know each other. And so I think it's right for us as, as a church to just realize there's, there's a great challenge out there for us of building relationships with each other, of working hard towards that end. New Testament biblical Christianity means being in a community where you know others and others know you. The, the leadership should know that you are there so that they can shepherd you. Other Christians should know who you are. That, that's, that's the reason why you'll hear us talk about church membership so often here. There's no kind of like end-of-the-year bonus that comes to the pastors if we get more people in. That's not what we're after. We just want to, to know who we are as a body. You can't live as a community if, it, if it's a transient group of people that are coming and going. So if you're not a member of a local church, that's the first application for you here. Uh, consider locking arms with this body or with some other gospel-preaching church where you can live out this command. Uh, if you've adopted the kind of thinking that's common in this day and age, let me just encourage you. You shouldn't think about church the way you think about a shopping mall. I mean, we're glad to be close to an MRT station and to be convenient. We hope that you like our building, as, as Mark Dever said last week. It's a wonderful building. I kind of like that. He said that three or four times. Uh, I hope that you find some of the, the programs that we have for children helpful to you. But those things are not primarily how you should think about being here. Uh, 
you should think about God's call on your life to lock arms with other Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christians. So join a church, and once you're in, let's all of us make brotherly love a practical thing. I've got five simple ideas I want to, to mention to you. How do we make brotherly love a practical thing? Well, number one, show up when the church gathers, Sunday morning, prayer meetings, equip, show up. Number two, meet, meet someone. Try to talk to someone new. This is your level three goal. Each week, I want to meet one new person. Show up, meet, pray. As you head home from church, pray for someone that you just talked to. Consider adding it to your prayer schedule during the the week. So show up, meet, pray. Number four, look. Look for opportunities to meet practical needs, for opportunities to serve people. I appreciated Jeremy confessing that we are often too busy to be inconvenienced. I think that's me too often. Let's look for needs that we can meet. And then number five, I couldn't come up with one word for this, be hard to offend. Be hard to offend. Building church community sounds great until someone hasn't remembered your name for the fourth time. I'm sorry if I've done that to you. Uh, You should resolve to be a really, really hard person to offend. It's going to happen. Go ahead and ask me for the fourth time what my name is. It's okay. I won't be offended. Go ahead and ask me why Americans are so whatever. You can do it. It's okay. I'm not going to get offended. We want to be a puppy, not a sea urchin in that regard. Be hard to offend. So the first duty of love that we see here is to love those inside the church. Let's press on and think about a second duty of love, to love those outside the church. Verse 2, look there with me. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Second command, as we consider the duties of love, we move from Philadelphia to Philozenia. The ESV here gives us three words, hospitality to strangers, Just one word in Greek, philozenia, literally love of strangers. In the first century, travel was difficult and dangerous. If you're moving around from town to town, you you often show up needing water, you need food, you need shelter. And there weren't always businesses. There weren't always inns or, or places that could provide a service even if you could pay for it. So the culture relied on hospitality. Uh, this is still the case, by the way, in much of the Middle East. Uh, so when, when my wife Megan uh, was a part of a, a missionary team um, living in the Middle East for a couple of years, part of their orientation was that they, they drove the, the new recruits out to a small town and they just dropped them on the, the, the street side and said, we'll be back in 24 hours. I don't think they'd do that anymore, probably for liability reasons. But they could do that because, as they found out, somebody would would see you, invite you in for dinner, uh, offer you a place to sleep for the night, and they would take care of you. That that was the the culture of hospitality that they relied on. 
Now, I'm persuaded that in this text, uh, the word strangers there, it probably refers primarily to traveling Christians that you don't know. I say that uh, in part because this text is echoing Jesus' words from Matthew 25. Remember in Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the final judgment and the the separation of the sheep from the goats. And, And he describes some of the things that are true of true believers. Listen to what Jesus says there. Then the king will say to those on his right, the the true believers, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As the writer of Hebrews echoes both the treatment of strangers and the treatment of those in prison, I think he's probably referring to Jesus' teaching. And when Jesus says, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, he's referring to his disciples. So Jesus is saying that part of the proof of your discipleship, of your being a real Christian, is not only your love of Christians inside your church, but those outside your church. Now, none of that means we shouldn't love those outside the faith, too. That we shouldn't be hospitable more broadly. So Galatians 6.10 is a good cross-reference for us here. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Loving our neighbor as ourselves means we should be looking to extend the love we have in the community to those outside the community. And this should lead us, friends, to think about our physical neighborhood, where we live, those businesses that we frequent, perhaps paying special attention to those around us with some need that we can meet. Love ought to make you ready to be inconvenienced, to help meet the need of someone around you. But our love of strangers certainly should begin with those who show up at GBC as strangers, as those we don't know, new people. Do you remember what it's like to be new? To walk in and have everything and everybody be strange and different. To feel like everyone already knows each other. I have an almost encyclopedic memory of the first time I walked into different churches as a guest, as a visitor. Uh, I can remember walking into Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and being greeted by Bruce Kiesling. He stood and talked to me for a long time. To the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church in western Pennsylvania, I met the first Chinese people I had ever met in my life there to walking into Abundant Grace International Fellowship in Shanghai, China. I remember, because I was a bit scared, 
I was uncertain. I didn't know where to go and what to do. And almost unfailingly, I can still remember the people who came and and stuck out a hand and said, Hi, my name is, what's yours? I was a stranger. They extended love to me. They were hospitable. Now, being hospitable goes beyond a conversation, to be sure. It it may mean opening your homes for meals, uh, perhaps providing a place for traveling missionaries or pastors to stay. Many of you did just that last weekend. So grateful for the hospitality that's already in our body. I think there are other forms of hospitality we can think of. Uh, we should probably talk more about foster care and adoption in this church than we do. Bringing children into your home. Uh, There are children in need of this right here in Singapore. Megan and I found out that as foreigners, uh, we're no longer eligible uh, to do that. But it's something we should think about. Hospitality to children in need. Now, this uh, second command, and quite a few of the ones that follow in this chapter, include with them a reason, a motivation for obedience. Uh, He says here, show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, the author almost certainly is remembering the story of Abraham uh, from the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. If you remember that story, uh, Abraham is sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, and three strangers are there before him. Uh, He jumps up and says, don't pass by, I want to prepare you a meal. And so his wife Sarah gets busy baking bread, and he tells a servant to actually kill the the, uh, calf to, to serve a meal, and then he stands while they sit and eat. He shows hospitality to them. And it turns out that these men are actually messengers of God. They're angels, including one of them speaks as Yahweh himself. So Abraham starts off thinking he's just going to be a good host to some traveling men. And he ends up with a divine audience. Now this might seem like a strange motivator to you. Invite someone over to dinner because they might be an angel. I don't know that you've ever had that thought I don't, I don't know what kind of a motivator it is for you. But I think part of our problem here is that uh, you and I can easily fall into living like practical deists. What do I mean by that? Well, a deist is, is one who, who believes that there's a creator, there's a God, but he doesn't engage with the world he's created at all. He, he's like the, the watchmaker that... that you know, made the watch and wound it up, and now it just runs. And so a, a deist doesn't think that there's really, there might be a spiritual world out there. There is a spiritual world out there, but there's no interaction between the spiritual world and the physical world. That's not at all the picture that the Bible presents. The Bible presents us a physical realm, though the world God has made, but also a spiritual realm with with spiritual beings that don't have a body like ours. And the two realms interact with each other. Indeed, for God as the creator, it's no strange or abnormal thing for him to interact with his creation. He's here now. He's watching us. 
It's listening. And it's really useful for you and I to know and live like the spiritual world and spiritual beings are real. God wants us, as Matthew 25 says, to interact with others and do things to others as doing them to Jesus himself. Like he's here, because he is. Indeed, we might very well be face-to-face with one of his messengers. So we should love those inside the church, our brothers and sisters. We should love those outside the church, the stranger. Let's consider a third group we are commanded to show love to here. Number three, love to those who are suffering. Verse three says, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. This church was similar to many churches in the latter part of the first century in the Roman Empire. Uh, Because Christianity was not an approved religion, because Christians viewed bowing down and praying to the emperor as idol worship, they wouldn't do it. They were considered dangerous traitors. Tian Chai preached to us a, a text a number of weeks back that talked about days soon after this church was planted where they had many members thrown into prison and even had their, their property plundered. A really intense persecution that apparently continued on some level up to the time of writing. They, they have members still in prison. They have members who are still being mistreated. I think as time stretches on, caring for these people would have been a strain. In fact, it would be easy to forget them amidst the busyness of life. That's why he urges remembering them. This would have involved regularly visiting them, taking them food or clothing, especially if they were in prison, certainly praying for them. I was thinking as I prepared for this, I'm grateful for the the work and ministry of prison fellowship. Um, Uncle KY and others have been involved in it over the years here Uh, That ministry has helped many believers, many churches realize that there's a great evangelistic work that can be done reaching out to those who are incarcerated. They are often those most acutely aware of what we should all be aware of, that we're desperate sinners in need of forgiveness. We ought to look for ways to pray for and support evangelistic work among those imprisoned. Maybe that's something that some of us should get involved in. But I think that we also ought to apply this verse by thinking about those who are suffering in our midst. Most applicable would be encouraging and praying for those who who are trying to be bold witnesses for Christ in their, their workplace or their home, and they're experiencing some level of persecution as a result. I encourage you in your care groups, your discipling relationships, to share about your own efforts, to be bold for Christ, and then ask for prayer as you try to do that in the face of pushback and opposition. But I think we could go further and think about those who are suffering more generally. Uh, in Paul's great chapter on living as members of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, he, he summarizes the idea of unity By saying, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's similar to the the motivator offered here. Love the imprisoned and the mistreated, 
since you are also are in the body. You have every reason to sympathize with them, to see yourself connected with them. They're suffering, you're suffering. It's the way we should view our body here. If, if someone is hurting, we should care. We should reach out. We should remember them. When I was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago, uh, I was living in Shanghai, and, and there was a, a lag time in between the, the diagnosis and when we knew some kind of a, a treatment plan. Uh, it was a difficult month in many ways for, for Megan and I. We, we were anxious, we were unsettled, we were uncertain, um, kind of struggling, to be honest. Uh, I got a call one day from a, a, fr- a friend who was in Wenzhou, a city about a five-hour train ride south of Shanghai, uh, said he and some other uh, members of his church who knew me, I'd helped them plant the church a number of years back. I'd helped them with some trainings. Uh, he said they're going to be in Shanghai. They wanted to come see me. I said, fine, that would be great. So the uh, next day, there they were in my living room, gathered around. They, they had brought with them some, uh, some expensive herbal tea um, that they told me was essential to, to my treatment. Um, and they could tell from the look on my face that I had some level of skepticism about Chinese medicine. Um, and so they, they turned to our Ai Shali and, 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 and spoke with her and said, uh, I, I couldn't hear what, what, what they said exactly, but the gist of it was that every morning she would come stand over me while I drank the herbal tea. <laughs> and, and, um, and she did. Um, anyway. Terrible tasting stuff. But, um, so, so they spent about an hour. They, they, they prayed for me. And then they said, we've got to go. Or we've got to catch a train. And I, I said, you got here an hour ago from Wenzhou. You could catch a train. And it, it dawned on me in that moment. They didn't have any business in Shanghai. I just wanted to come see me and, and save my life with herbal tea. But they just came for an hour to see me. And I have to tell you, in all the struggle that Megan and I went through that particular month, uh, that was, that was a, a cup of cold water to a thirsty soul. You know, friends, I, I think we forget that, that we're meant to be the, the hands and the feet of Jesus to each other. When someone is suffering, when someone is struggling, your ministry to them just by your presence just by your conversation, just by your prayer. It's like a hug from the Lord Jesus. It's how he intends for us to think about living as a body. So I wonder, as you look around you right now, I wonder who might need the encouragement you can offer. Prayer, friendship, practical help. Now, three verses in, I think we're catching on to the thought of the author here. Do you want to worship God with reverence and awe? Do do you love him for what he's done for you in Christ? Love those in his body, the church. Love those outside, the strangers. And then especially love those who are suffering around you. There's one final duty of love. Love to those who are married. Let's look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Speaking to the church, the author wants all of them to honor 
marriage. Honor means to respect and to esteem highly. We might ask, well, how do we do that? Well, first, we honor it by not changing it. Marriage, as God made it, is between one man and one woman, exclusive to each other for life. It's wonderful when the greater society around us supports that, but even if they don't, either by allowing so-called same-sex marriage back in my home country, or by supporting no-fault divorce in many countries, the church simply insists on the biblical definition. We honor marriage by clarifying that single Christians should marry in the Lord. There's no circumstance whereby a Christian should consider marrying an unbeliever and so being, in Paul's words, unequally yoked. We honor it by helping engaged couples prepare well for marriage, teaching them that marriage is is more about service than it is about satisfaction, by teaching them what marriage is and what it will require of them. We honor it by making a big deal of weddings, They're both joyful, solemn occasions worthy of our attention. Because when we attend a marriage, that's, that's meant to be a place of witness. So so we are there so that one day, if need be, we can look a friend in the eye and say, No, no, I, I was there when you made those promises. You need to keep them now. We honor it by walking alongside couples through the many peaks and valleys that come in between I do and till death do us part. Let marriage be held in honor by all. And then our author gets even more specific. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. And he gives the motivator or the ground for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. You know, the the Bible talks both clearly and delicately about sex. Here it uses a euphemism in saying the the marriage bed, but there's no mistaking the meaning of undefiled. Other translations say keep the marriage bed pure. The word he uses for sexual immorality here refers simply to sex outside of marriage, any form. The word adulterous refers more specifically to a a married person sleeping with someone not their spouse. Now, we ought to ask why the writer needs to be as specific as he is here. And the reason has to be, just as reinterpretation of marriage is as old as human beings, so is the reinterpretation of sexuality. God invested sex with great meaning and power. It is the consummation of what makes two people one in marriage, according to Genesis 2.24. And so for human beings, in rebellion against God, sexual immorality is an expression of their rejection, the presence, the goodness of God in the way he made the human family. It's also an expression of selfishness personal gratification that refuses to accept the good gift 
in the context in which the Creator intended it. What is clear here is that those who live this way can expect to meet God as their judge. He will judge. There's no way around these sobering words. Paul is no less clear in 1 Corinthians 6. There he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The person living in sexual immorality right now, the person who is defiling the marriage bed, should not expect salvation, but judgment. It doesn't matter that they think they made a a profession of faith earlier in their life. It doesn't matter that they were baptized or that they joined a church. Their current lifestyle shows where they're at, shows what they're trusting in, what is true of them. Now, praise God, that doesn't have to be the end of the story. God's hands are ever held out to a disobedient and an obstinate people. There is plentiful forgiveness for any sin in Jesus Christ, and there's always hope. But friend, if if you would come to him, you have to leave your sin behind. You have to repent. That's what the Bible means by the turning that has to happen from your sin to him in faith. I, I pray that you will do that this morning if that's where you're living. Friends, if you're ensnared in any kind of sin, take the warning Run from your sins. Flee to Christ. The verse says, he will wash you. He will sanctify you. He will justify you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. But you must leave your sin behind. So this fourth and final love command here, it has application to those who are married. Love your spouse in an exclusive, God-honoring way. And it has application to all. Love God by honoring and protecting marriage the way he made it to be. So we've considered four commands that we want to pay attention to. Love to those inside the church, to those outside the church, to those suffering, and to those married. We we began by thinking about Fiddler on the Roof and Tevye's struggle to understand the meaning of love. Uh, Towards the end of the story, he and his wife, Holgi, sing a a really sweet duet. His wife, Goldie, sings, For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. 25 years my bed is his, if that's not love. What is? And then Tevye asks, Then you love me. Goldie says, I suppose I do. And Tevye says, I suppose I love you too. Both sing together. It doesn't change a thing. But even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. The idea here is that these two people find 
that in the midst of the covenant of marriage, the duties of love express and fulfill the meaning of the thing itself. Friends, how much more should we, who by faith in a crucified Savior, have been brought into the new covenant by his blood, how much more should we pay attention to the duties of love? Where his once by creation, twice by redemption, no matter where we look, we see evidence of his great love for his bride, the church. He loves us. He's given us every reason to pay attention to the duties of love. Let's pray.